0: FOREVER!
1: DOG! Just Between Us hey.
2: Just Between Us
3: I'm Allison Maskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and I have officially been approved to get knee surgery.
4: <laughs> Hi, I'm Gabby Don. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink. And I was going to say gossip mongerer, but I don't know if that's actually... Is that, is what, that, does that mean what I think it means? What I, what do you think it means? Just like running with the headlines, like a, <laughs> just like a yellow journalism tabloid, like just ready... But like about my own personal
3: life. I have to say, I have no idea what you're talking about. Are you saying that you love to gossip? Are you saying that you're spreading gossip? No, I like hearing gossip. Yeah, who doesn't? I know. It's bad. Gossip's the best. Melissa's shaking her head. What do you talk about, Melissa, then?
1: (laughs) Thoughts and feelings. (laughs)
3: Thoughts and feelings. feelings. Not for me. I have a
1: lot of those too.
4: There's that Jewish story that's like, is it Jewish? Where it's like you open, they say they have the guy who gossips a lot, and then he they say, open a pillow, a feather pillow, and then all the feathers go everywhere. And then they say, Okay, now go get every feather. And he's like, I can't. And then they're like, Well, that's what gossip is like. Did they ever say that to you? No, I've never heard that. Really? But I was reformed. Oh, my God. It was like a religious, like a scare tactic, religious story that they would tell us in Hebrew school.
3: My thing is, I, I had seen this really cool TikTok that I wish I had saved that was explaining that basically people started to look down on gossip because primarily women did it. But really, it was a way of just like keeping track of what was going on in your community. And like, it wasn't a negative thing right. but then because it was primarily done by women. Right. Society deemed it bad.
4: That's what I think. Because, what? Yeah. okay, imagine you just live in, like, one village. Right. What are you going to talk about? Exactly. How are you going to know what's going on? How are you going
3: to keep up? Keep it up builds community. Today? It builds community. There's yeah. a difference between
4: talking negatively about somebody and just being all up in their business. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you don't have to talk negatively. My friend one of Mal's friend actually friends was here and just did a thing where it was like, okay, we talked for a little bit about who we hate. Let's all go around and say someone we love. (laughs) Oh, I love that. And so we were like, okay. Then I was like, you know who I really like? And it's not anyone that that person knows, but I was like, here's someone that I really like that we just met. And then we talked about them. And then I was like, oh, that's nice. And then I went and texted that person and said, someone just asked me to talk about someone new that I really like. And I talked about you. And that person was like, oh, Oh so honestly, God. positivity in the world, baby. I I had never heard someone do this was Mouse Friend Sid. I had never heard someone say, "Let's go around and say someone we like." <laughs> I love that.
3: Wow. I'm going to steal I thought it. it was
4: really lovely. Anyway, this is just between <laughs> us. A
3: variety show filled with heartfelt advice, ridiculous games, and brutal honesty.
4: Who's someone that you like? Oh, who's someone that I like? Hmm, let me see.
3: So I started a new class semester a couple weeks ago. I like both my professors, but one of my professors, I just really like him. He's like funny and kind. And I I had mentioned that I was a writer and then he like stopped me in the hallway to like recommend this book a colleague of his had written that he thought I would enjoy. And he also was, was talking about, you know, therapy used as a form of social control and as soon as a professor does that, I'm in. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I yeah, I, I just really like his vibe and his demeanor and I feel lucky that he's my professor.
4: That's really nice. Yeah. <laughs> Aww. I said a new friend of mine that I met from TikTok that oh, cool. came over with her girlfriend and I, it was very nice of her like she's came over and with the girlfriend to watch The Bachelor. And I was like, oh, cool. And then when they got there, she was like, I don't really watch The Bachelor. I just wanted <laughs> to come over. And I was like, you don't even watch it. And she was like, no, I just wanted to hang out. But then then ever she keeps coming over to watch it, but she's not a fan of the show.
3: That's so funny.
4: So it's very sweet. Shout out to Steen. Steen is a, a TikTok personality. What a fun activity. I'm going to do that. Yeah. Well, this week on the show, we're going to be asking Roanne Verst some tough questions about plant-based lifestyles, and also, she's a future anthropologist, so what does that mean?
3: And later, we'll be discussing nostalgia. Are we nostalgic for anything? Everything? Everything. <laughs> <laughs> but first, we have got to answer a listener's question, so you know what that means. Hit it! International question! International question! Question, Anonymous, Australia.
4: Ooh, Australia. Ozzy, Ozzy, Ozzy. oi, oi, (laughs) oi. Okay. They say that.
3: I believe you. So the subject of this email is what really lured me in. And the subject was, are looks all that matter? Anonymous then writes, hi from Australia. TLDR, my dad has ingrained in me this really narrow beauty standard, and it's affecting how I see myself in relation to men. Mm. basically me and my dad are best friends my family has very progressive politics and he's always on the right side of feminism etc the one issue he's always been terrible at though is his view on female beauty and the value he places on it he consistently pointed out to me whenever he thinks a woman is so gorgeous they take his breath away and has spoken about the visceral effect a good-looking woman has on men The epitome of female beauty, as he puts it, is the Ralph Lauren girl, a very thin, naturally beautiful white woman with long, straight hair. Wow. It's really fucked me up my whole life trying to fit this mold. I was a chubby kid with frizzy hair who went to great unhealthy lengths to get thin, spent thousands of dollars on achieving straight blonde hair just so I could feel I was living up to my full potential or something. He has always complimented me endlessly on my intelligence, my personality, humor, etc., but never once said I'm pretty or beautiful. Basically, the messaging I've gotten from him and every man that I've dated is that at the end of the day, looks count for so much, and it's just made me this jaded, paranoid person who feels like I have to work so hard to be attractive because at the end of the day, it will up my value in male eyes. I also feel like these feminist men I've dated feel more comfortably telling me how important my looks are because I am conventionally attractive and do fit the beauty standard and maybe think I won't be disheartened or offended by it or something. I am so sick of it. I just want to feel enough and feel like they are men who truly care about other things more. By the way, for background, my f- dad is an intelligent, very successful author. Him and my amazing mom were together for 30 years before splitting amicably. He has only ever dated extremely educated, intelligent, and age-appropriate women, and yet still makes comments like these. So what the fuck? Thanks, Anonymous.
4: This is a roller coaster. I know. <sighs> wow. wow. Wow, 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 wow. Wow, 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 First of all, you know what's funny? is that men think they know what they want, or men think that there's a beauty standard. But like, in practice, I've never seen it be applicable in the way that it seems to be portrayed in media. There are people that I would go, oh, that person's out of my league because they're conventionally attractive. And then like, what they want is never like another perfect looking. Like, I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say. Like, it's never been like that, applicable to anything in my life. Like I have a shaved head right now and I don't have any problems. Like no man has been like, "ugh," go. Like, it's so interesting. Once you kind of drop all of that, like I have underarm hair, I have leg hair. My head is again, like shaved. Like I don't, I, I don't wear makeup. Like I don't have any of that. And I've like not had any sort of issue. And maybe that's just because... I'm a conventional weight and I have a symmetrical face or something. I don't know. But like, it's just kind of funny that all of these things are built up and men are told that this is what they want. And it's never actually, it's not like what they Does that make sense? Like they're told so much and then- You just see it in practice and it's like less of that.
3: Well, I think that there's also a big social status element to who you're seeing. That's what it is. It's not what they actually want. I I, look, I can't speak to to what men are actually attracted to or not and what they're denying themselves or not. But I do think that there's this really the, the thing I can speak to more is like, how do we not let this kind of messaging From the men in our lives that we respect, especially these father figure, more authoritative men. And a lot of times authoritative women who who kind of share the exact same views, not affect our views of ourselves and how we interact in the world. Mm -hmm. And as somebody who has had comments about their weight from people in their life, and I think for me, I have really latched on to confidence Mm -hmm. Right. And so a lot of times it's like, okay, what's evidence like what is evidence? And for me, it's like I'm so drawn to people who are confident Mm -hmm. and who carry themselves like they love themselves and that they're happy to be themselves. And I think that there is so much to that that we don't talk about where we instead just focus on the visual elements of another person. But like how many times have you been drawn to somebody who isn't your quote unquote traditional type? Because of their vibe. That's
4: the <laughs> you <thing. know>? Yeah. <laughs> like, that's what I'm saying. And I
3: think that we are a very look-based culture. But I also think that in reality, we also respond so much to someone's energy. Mm-hmm. But I think that's harder to describe and harder to nail down. Mm-hmm. And you also can't necessarily sell beauty products for someone's energy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you can't monetize the energy of it all. Yeah, And so we don't have as much focus on that. But... Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of noise, right? It's a lot of damaging noise. And I can see you in this email giving credit to the source, right? Mm -hmm. You're giving credit to your dad. You're making sure that we know that your dad isn't off his rocker and in other aspects of his life. So maybe does that give validity to what he is saying about female beauty? And I think that like it is just this huge blind spot for most people. Yeah. And we kind of get into this in hypotheticals. But (laughs) something that has been rubbing me the wrong way for a while is that like you do always ask if the person is attractive in hypotheticals.
4: But what I mean is attractive to me. Do I find them attractive? Right. right. But I don't know. Like even... Even so. Yeah. Even so, you know, like that's such a... It is this idea
3: that we can place people in attractive and unattractive. Yeah. And then it, it creates this binary where you go through the world being like, well, I'm either attractive or unattractive. Right.
4: No, it's it's to who? It's to whose box are you going to tick? Who are you going to talk to? And they'll be like, oh, I really... Some people are like, this person's hot, but they're so annoying and off-putting.
3: Yeah. And I mean, I think for me, a a big fear comes from, okay, you know, my partner is attracted to me now, but what about if, but, but all of this messaging that men in particular are so looks based, so looks focused. What if I don't look like this in 10 years? What if Mm -hmm. I don't look like this in 20 years? You know, what if something happens and my body is totally different? And my Mm -hmm. face is totally different than it is when they fell in love with me, Mm -hmm. you know. And so that's really where I start to, like, have a spiral and freak out a little bit. Yeah. But then I go to, well, fuck you.
4: (laughs) Also, he's gonna, like, why, he would look different, too. (laughs) Exactly. I am lucky to to have a partner who is trans and who, I mean, when Mal and I started dating, they didn't have a beard. They had no facial Mm -hmm. hair, no chest hair. Now they have a full beard, full chest hair. Like, they look completely different in the face than when we first met because of testosterone. I actually have a call after this with a, an intake to perhaps go on testosterone. And when Mal met me, I had long hair, I was feminine, like, you know, so like, I might turn into a completely different gender before their eyes. <laughs> like It's like, you know, like, one of my worries about that is like, will I still be hot? <laughs> Which is like, so shallow but like they're like wow like you really have access to all this medical care like this is amazing and I'm like right but I just need to know am I gonna be hot like because I won't do it if I won't be hot which is like I think kind of a relatable thing for trans people but also just like It's a question that I feel like I'm like embarrassed to ask. But what is your definition of hot? That's the problem is
3: that we approach all of this stuff like there is clear cut, attractive, not attractive, clear cut, hot, not hot, you know? And and as long as we buy into that, we can't fix the greater problems. I know.
4: It's also hard because I did this as well. And I've talked about this a lot where like my sister and I were raised. So my dad, let's not even account for him because he wasn't around. But my mom has a lot of this sort of I've like started being like, you know, how you have an eating disorder, mom. And people are like, that's not a thing. But some people are like, it is a thing where like she would constantly talk about like losing weight and your body and pointing out other people's bodies and all this kind of stuff. And my grandmother, too, Maymay, was constantly, like, talking about me and Cheyenne's looks. And Cheyenne, when we were growing up, my sister was very much, she was conventionally beautiful. Blue eyes, blonde hair, very feminine, very, like, you know, everybody would comment on it. And then I was, like, fine. But I was, like, very smart. And, like, was constantly, like, lauded for getting A's and for getting, joining clubs and all this stuff. And so we were taught growing up, one of you is beautiful. And one of you is smart. And your email reminded me of that because it's like this thing where you're like, well, I'm praised for being intelligent. I'm praised for my personality. I'm praised for my humor. So that excludes looks. Why is this like kind of pitted against each other as like this sort of thing where like, oh, you either focus on your looks and you're like a bimbo or you focus on your school and you're (laughs) you can't care about what you look like or be attractive. Like it's this very strange, like second wave feminist kind of thing that like, I feel like your dad was subtly pushing.
3: I mean, the the problem is, it's just the way society is built in general.
4: He doesn't even think about it. He probably just says it in passing. And then if you brought it up, he'd be like, Oh, but I don't mean you. But I'm just saying that that we are
3: such a, a looks based society. I know. And I think primarily, most likely due to capitalism and that like by making people obsess about their looks, you could make them spend a lot of money to correct their quote quote, Mm unquote, correct their looks. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, it is true. Like we like beauty in the world. We like beautiful settings, beautiful art, but it's all so subjective. So I do not have a a solution for the fact that we live in a looks based society. But in terms of what you do in your brain and in how you handle this messaging. I have found it really helpful for certain things to, especially with older generations, to be like, they're a product of their messaging. Yeah, My father took in a lot of messaging that this quote-unquote Ralph Lauren girl is what is approved by society as beautiful. He has not done any work to unpack that. Right. And therefore, he is operating under a false belief system. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so how much credit do you give people who have kind of faulty cognitions? You Uh know, like, and we all have faulty cognitions about a variety of things. But a big faulty cognition is that there is a very slim standard that makes you beautiful. And that's just not true.
4: And it's very racist. It's very ableist.
3: Incredibly, all of those things. Yeah. And so once you choose to release yourself from that, it can be a little easier to not take in when people believe it. Mm-hmm. and try to confirm it to you because it's you going, well, that's not true. <laughs> I understand that you believe it, but yeah. it's just
4: not true. Sometimes I feel bad for people who still believe that way, because what's been great about being queer is... Wait, I'm sorry, you're queer? <laughs> <laughs> well, what's been great is is it kind of... I mean, I still find myself holding myself to these standards, obviously. But what's been great is is the people I follow and the friends I have in my life Seeing them be confident with these bodies that have mixed markers of gender, friends of mine who are on testosterone but don't want to get top surgery, so have chest hair on breasts, like things like that, where I'm like, that looks fucking cool. Like there's certain things where I've been able to see people being confident and being happy with themselves. Everyone is hot in these ways that are a little bit like they've made these choices that make them feel comfortable rather than and make them feel hot rather than what is like the beauty standard. And that's been super cool to see. That's been something that I've been trying to internalize since like 2016, when I realized that (laughs) that that was a a possibility. But it was jarring when I figured that out when I figured out that that there was like a whole secret underworld of people who were just like confident and happy, not existing in societal framework. (laughs) I was like, it's fucked with me because I was like you're telling me that I didn't have to do any of this this whole fucking time and that was like you almost get your defenses up about it because you're like no no I did all of this and then you're like oh wait never mind
3: (laughs) and I think you you're touching on something really cool which is that it's not that you have to then not care at all about how you look externally Mm -hmm. because as we've sort of talked about before you know, your outward appearance is kind of this cool window into who you are. Mm -hmm. And so you don't necessarily just have to just be a blank slate in in that area. But it's more about instead of conforming to other people's expectations or what you think their preferences are, Mm -hmm. finding things that make you feel good, that make you feel beautiful, that make you look in the mirror and feel like yourself. You know, like I recently had to get headshots done and I wanted to just wear a black tank top, you right. know, and and my friend was sort of telling me I should bring more variety. And I ended up bringing one other shirt. But I was like, I feel the most myself. Yes. In just a black tank top. Yes. <laughs> that's what I feel the most confident. That's what I feel the most myself. And so I brought three different, nice. ones, you know, and so like learning that, that like, it's not shutting off the physical part of yourself, right. because I don't think that that's healthy either, yeah. necessarily. But it's Finding what works for you, what developing what is appealing to you and being right. okay when that changes, being okay with exploring different things, but having it come internally and not responding to external demands of beauty.
4: And like also what men value, right? Like so I had a bumble profile where it had old pictures of me and my hair was long and I looked, you know, even though it said they them, people could see it swipe on, be like, oh, that's a that's a cute girl or whatever. And then I realized that all of those matches, I was like, I don't feel right about these. Like, so I deleted it, started over. It's me with my hair, how it is. And then I was like, men are going to be less into this. Not so. And you just feel better. It Rather than going by what men value, if you just like are true and and feel better, then it's going to be reflected in the people you bring into your life.
3: Absolutely. I like this episode because it's all about just Starting over, <laughs> you know, reimagining society. <laughs> right? If you want to submit your international question at Reimagine Society, please send it to just between us pod at gmail.com. That's just between us pod at gmail.com.
4: Up next, we have an exciting interview with our highly esteemed guest, Roran Van Boost. So stay tuned.
2: What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to hero.co to shop today.
0: Has dealing with stress and trying to get more focused a New Year's resolution you haven't cracked yet or don't really know how to fix? I have a lot of trouble staying focused, and I also get super stressed out, and I think the not being able to stay focused really dovetails with that. So if there was a way for me to keep my focus that didn't also cause my brain to get so scattered with stress, I would love to be able to fix it. I sometimes can't focus on the task at hand because I'm so busy realizing that there are things I need to do on the Just Between Us Instagram account. So I'll be like fully writing something, and all of a sudden my brain will go, oh! <gasps> JBU Instagram, have to post on social media. Truvega is a handheld product that stimulates the vagus nerve to improve overall health and wellness. Stimulating the vagus nerve with Truvega helps to balance and strengthen the nervous system, which reduces stress, increases focus, improves mood, and improves sleep. Truvega is owned by Electrocore and uses its patented technology for overall health and wellness benefits. Its utilized technology is the most clinically studied and tested vagus nerve therapy available customizable sessions are only two minutes long recommended usage is one session in the morning and one at night Truvega comes programmed with 350 sessions which if used twice a day will last approximately six months it's drug-free and easy to use therapy to help improve your health no app or phone is required we offer free standard shipping payment plan options and a 30-day money-back guarantee it's only available in the u.s at this time visit truevega.com T R U V A G A dot com and enter promo code Just Between Us to enhance your wellness journey, support this podcast, and receive fifteen dollars off. That's T R U V A G A dot com. Check out promo code Just Between Us.
3: Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous,
4: controversial segment known to all of podcasting. Tough questions. This week on the show, we have Roanne Van Voorst, the author of Once Upon a Time We Ate Animals. She's a researcher, writer, speaker, and moderator. As an anthropologist of the future, her core research focuses on what she calls sustainable humanity. And we are here to talk about Once Upon a Time We Ate Animals and all things veganism. Hi. Hi.
2: Hey, wow. I'm so impressed with how fast you talk.
4: Thank you. I try to get the, the, all of the snappy introductions done in a real like almost like announcer, like baseball announcer
2: voice. Yeah. Can I hire you for when I do speaking gigs? It's like it's a nice <laughs> intro.
4: I'm a hype man. I'll come out and hype the crowd. Sounds good. So I have
3: to ask to, just to even start us off. What is a future anthropologist?
2: I know, right? Um, <laughs> well, basically, I have a double background. So I obtained my PhD in anthropology. That was in 2014. But then I was always a weird anthropologist. So I guess most people know anthropologists because they are the types of people that are really interested in traditions or the past or going to exotic places. And for me, it was I was interested in, in the future essentially. And so I got retrained or double trained and became a futurist, which sounds as if I can predict the future, which is unfortunately not the case. But I am trained in kind of sketching realistic future scenarios. So I talk with a lot of people. I read literature. I also have a sense for potential trends because I'm, I'm kind of schooled in that. And then if I have some of those future sc- scenarios, then I pretty much take on my anthropological lens and just think through if this is going to scale up, if this is actually going to be the future, then what would that do to society? And what would it do to individual lives? And you can't do f- research in the future. I always tell my students who then look very disappointed if they, you know, choose to have a course with me, they're like, oh, there's the future anthropologist. We're going to do cool stuff. I'm like, no, not really. <laughs> but you can do research on the future. And that is, for example, by going to places in the world where the likely future scenario is already unfolding. Mm. And so you can already sit amongst the people, kind of try to understand from their perspective, what is going on and and what does it do to us?
3: And then with this book, Once Upon a Time We Ate Animals, you're sort of imagining a future where most people have a plant-based lifestyle. Is that like the, the main premise?
2: Yeah. So, I, I mean, at least the people in places in the world where it's easy to get plant-based alternatives for what you really need mm-hmm. to eat. So for my job, I, I've done field work in Greenland amongst the Inuit. And I can tell you that they're not going to eat Beyond Burgers anytime soon. You know, for them, it's just the only thing they have is whales and seals. And I think for them, that's probably wonderful as well. I mean, if you if you have nothing else to eat and your body really needs, of course, the micronutrients, then it's fine. But I think for a lot of us, especially the people living in urban settings like myself in Amsterdam, in Europe, in the US, where it has become so much easier to get the affordable plant-based stuff, I think for us, it might be a good idea to at least try to eat less animal protein just because it's proven to be so much less damaging on the environment, on the climate, but especially I would say on animal well-being. Perhaps not everybody would agree with me that this is a really nice future scenario, especially if you're thinking like, what? I cannot live without the chicken soup of my mom. And I totally feel you. I'm Dutch, so I have had that with cheese for a lot of time. But I do think most of the people will agree that what we've kind of got to now, big industrial farming, doesn't really sit right with most of us. If you look at, you know, the film clip sometimes coming up through your Facebook and you kind of want to scroll past because it's just, ah, uh, it's a slaughterhouse film clip, you know, or you have those documentaries on Netflix. It's like, I really don't want to watch them because I kind of know, you know, something's off. And so I wanted to sketch a future in which the eating of meat and fish would have been become like a cultural taboo, like smoking, you know, something that we might still do every now and then. And when I grew up, you know, when I, I was a kid, I would have all of those uncles sitting on the birthday parties and they would smoke and nobody had a problem with that. And I have a daughter now, she's one year old, and I'm pretty sure that if I would have friends over and they would smoke inside of the room, all of them, I would be like, that's kind of antisocial. Are you sure you don't want to do that outside? That's very unhealthy. And that I can see happening with meat, mm-hmm. not because I think it's unhealthy actually, but because you already see that the younger generations who are now growing up with so much climate anxiety and who are now growing up with all those documentaries on you know, animal misabuse, etc. For them, it's such a logical step. And so then I think we all play a role in history, whether we're aware of it of, or not. And I can see grandchildren now asking their grandparents, like, so what did you do when you knew how bad it was for the climate, when you knew how bad it was for the environment, you know, what did you do? And I can see the grannies who who became proactive vegans being the cool ones and the others (laughs) being a little bit outdated, you know, a little bit, a little bit outdated.
4: That is so interesting comparing it to the way we view smoking. That's really fascinating, especially because it was so normalized, you know, in the 50s and stuff. And I often wonder, yeah, like how we'll be looked back on. So your book, you talk about like you're not imagining anything, really. You're going to places where they're already doing these things. So can you talk about some of the things that are already going on that you predict will become more normalized?
2: Yeah, so the first chapter is called How Farmers Can Save the World. And I called it that because it's based on interviews that I've done or online research that I've done with livestock keepers mostly who already sold their cows or their pigs sometimes and went over to produce lupine beans or other plant-based produce. And some of them did so because they feel it's just more lucrative. And they say, well, you know, the future is just going to be more plant-based, so I better switch now. Others do it because they say, and I always found this so impressive when they told me, they say, I became a farmer because I really loved animals, love animals, and because I like my freedom, right? It's like, I'm not going to sit in an office. I'll just be outside with the animals, do my thing. But I think the romantic view that so many of us still have on livestock keeping, on fishery, it's still like the small scale, family-owned, etc. And many of them felt they had to scale up and scale up and scale up because, you know, you and I pay very low prices in the supermarket. And so they kind of got stuck. And some of them decided, this forces me to treat my animals in a way that's really not nice because I no longer know all of their names, right? I I have 8,000 cows. How can I? It's all a machinery. It's all automated. Uh, I sent them to the slaughterhouses as soon as I don't need them anymore because the milk produce is getting less. And they looked at themselves and kind of, you know, just didn't want to be that person anymore. And so I went to those brave, I would say, farmers, because it seems pretty scary already to have like a radical job change especially, I would say, if it's such an identity thing. Mm-hmm. But I also went and did field work amongst vegan sexuals, for example, which is a growing group of people who only date other vegans and they have their own dating platforms, vegan sexual platforms. And they say it's because, you know, obviously it's because they share values. It's also very practical because you don't have to debate on which restaurant you go. You just, Probably mm-hmm. both want to go to the plant-based a new bee in town. They also say, this is their words, not mine, that vegans taste better and smell better. Let's not go into it. But that's what they say. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, so, so I did research not just amongst vegan sexual, but also amongst mixed couples. And I think that's actually more recognizable for a lot of people where you have, you know, you might be in a relationship and then say it's a heterosexual relationship where the woman, it's often the women, already goes vegetarian or vegan, and the guy's like, hell no, hell no. And then oh, Are you talking you get, about my relationship? <laughs> I'm talking about a couple that I've had. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's funny because I actually interview a Harvard psychology professor who is specialized in guiding mixed couples. And with mixed couples, she means vegan, non-vegan couples because they fight so often and it's really hard to communicate about it. So yeah, that's interesting.
4: Well, PR has done a lot of work. The media has done a lot of work tying masculinity to consumption of beef. You know, they've, they've worked real overtime making sure that you can't watch a game without chicken wings.
2: Absolutely. And I made actually a cultural analysis in this book of some of the funny commercials that you see where guys have that kind of almost emotional connection to meat. And it's it's a very funny idea. I mean, if you think about it, the idea was that what you eat, you become. And so if you eat meat, you will become as strong as a cow or as an ox. Yeah. And now you have an alternative there because there's a couple of really sexy very masculine men, I would say. I'm always a bit confused with what that really is. I think the whole concept should probably change. But the traditional masculine-looking men, but now the vegan versions thereof. And they wear T-shirts, for example, that say, like, eat what elephants eat saying this is a super strong animal and they're plant-based like they're (laughs) vegans and so if you want to become as strong as an elephant do what they do but you have a lot of bodybuilders I think the number one strongest guy in the world is actually vegan you have more and more athletes that are but also the cool chefs in restaurants that really kind of you know tattooed muscled and then they give you a mushroom steak instead of a beef steak you know so that's mm-hmm. that's a very interesting new perspective and I think it was uh Jonathan Safran Four who once wrote about this in one of his books and I thought it was such a beautiful idea where he says there's two guys sharing a dinner and the one says oh I really need a burger you know because I really feel like eating a burger and the other says, "Oh, I would really love a burger too, but I'm finding other things more important than you know what I want to eat than my taste preference, and so I chose I choose for an alternative, I chose for a plant based one." And then Saffron Four asks, "So he who's the stronger here? Who's the more rational? Who's the more masculine? The one that just kind of goes with his emotions and his feelings, or the one that recognizes those?" and then says, but I opt for the planet. And I thought that was pretty cool.
4: That's interesting. It is, right?
3: Yeah, I mean, I have had such a complicated relationship with all of this, where I was a vegetarian from eight to 21. And it was a huge part of my identity. And it was just for moral reasons where I just didn't think it was right to eat animals. And then I started to eat chicken and, and fish and, you know, I would rationalize it to myself by saying I was eating stupid animals, like animal, like I wouldn't eat pigs or cows or any, you know, and I did that for years. And then only really recently I've gone back to being where now I'll just eat fish. And even that I feel such mixed things about. And I feel like there's this huge cultural divide around all of it where like, yeah. I see this cognitive dissonance with people in my life who I know care so much about the environment. And love animals in terms of like the animals they interact with in the day, but then continue to eat meat. <laughs> yeah. And so I guess I'm wondering, like, how do we get through to those people who already care about the environment, already care about animals, yet are, are have no moral quandaries consuming meat?
2: But one of the findings or thoughts that I had on that, because I do write a lot about the cognitive dissonance and I did, I don't want to be judgmental because I was never a vegan. I, I was the opposite from being a vegan activist before I started doing research for this book. I was semi-vegetarian, but like you, I would still eat fish. And I'm still not the most rigid vegan. You know, when I'm traveling, sometimes I go to places in a world where people are really poor. And then for me, the social contact with the other human being is more important on that stage, you know, so if they offer me a piece of chicken, and I know that's really a big thing for them, I'm not going to bother them and be like, hey, but the environment, you know, these people have other things on their mind. And also, recently, I was in Spain just for holidays, that's not a poor country. And I'm sure that if I would have spent a full day of looking for something vegetarian, I would have found it, but it was the second cafe where we were, I was extremely hungry. We were going for a hike the full day. They had nothing vegan. I'm like, okay, I'm going to treat myself on a chocolate croissant, you know? So I'm not the type of vegan activist, I would say. I was just really interested in the processes that I was noting with myself. And those are similar to what you describe. It's like I knew kind of what was co- going on. I was also, when I was a teenager, I turned vegetarian. I do think that that was partly for animals, but also partly because I just thought it was kind of a unique or cool identity thing. My partner too. My partner
4: was vegan for a while because it was like a rebellion. (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
2: It's like, oh, look at me. You know, I have something special. Mm -hmm. Uh, That definitely was the case in my my situation. But I also knew that for many years, I think for like two decades, I just continued to drink cow's milk because I always said, you know, I don't see what's wrong with kind of taking the milk from the cow. We're not hurting it. And I think many of us now can know, if you read the literature, that it is actually very damaging. It's not very nice, the whole process. You can read into it. But I think I just didn't want to know. And I also think that there's another thing that we are not very familiar with slaughterhouses most of the time, right? They're, They're outside of the places where we live. We might see a farm every now and then, but then it's not the huge commercial one or we don't go inside, etc. So it's something that it doesn't really go deep within us. And in the book, I say, I don't think that we are being mean people who don't give a shit. I think we are compassionate. We love animals. Most of us do anyhow. Children love animals. It's the first you know, words that we teach them. It's all in their children's books. But then at some stage, we're just taught that eating animal protein is normal. And then we kind of make this disconnect because it would be horrible to really think about what we're doing in that situation. Then with the animals, we make the same arguments that you make like, oh, but they're not feeling as much because they don't understand because they're more stupid than we are. Or if we see a film clip of a slaughterhouse incident with like a cow, that's really, you know, not okay over there. We say, that's an incident. It doesn't happen like that all the time, even if we see such incidents tens times you know, per week. Yeah. So I don't think it's a matter of us not feeling enough with the animals or not being compassionate. I think we're very compassionate beings. And because of that, we kind of lock things away.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I
2: don't think we have to be too strict with ourselves because we were all born and raised in a culture that normalizes eating animal protein. More than that, you hear from your teachers, from your parents, from the doctors, that it's really healthy for your body, that humans have always eaten it, that we need it. And so I think for a lot of people, we cannot escape that idea. So it it might be a horrible idea what is happening to the animals, but at the same time, you're like, yeah, but we need it. So what can we do, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think the way to get through to those people, if people recognize themselves in that, is to sketch an alternative. Because I think nowadays we know, but it's still not in the history books, that for example, there have been large parts in human history where animals were not eaten because they weren't around, because we didn't have any weapons. You know, the whole idea of humans, the hunter, Is a bit of an ego thing for us because we weren't really good hunters. We were, for long times, we were scavengers. I mean, if you would walk on the street now and you would see a cow and you would have no weapons on you, I wish you very good luck with killing that cow with your bare teeth, right? It's just not going to work. We don't have that type of teeth. We cannot get through the skin. So we only learned to do that when we invented weapons. Before that, a lot of the time we're just eating veggies. And perhaps small animals like fish or something. And if an animal was already killed by another animal, we would scrape off the meat. But that's a different thing. So our stomach slowly but gradually got used to eating more and more meat. But it wasn't like we were bunkering like we do now, right? I mean, we eat much more now than we used to do for many periods, long periods in human history. So that's one kind of myth that needs to be busted. The other one is you don't really need it. There's a misunderstanding. I'm not saying that vegan is necessarily healthier. I think you can have a wonderful healthy diet either way with or without animal protein, but it's very easily possible to have a healthy diet with plant-based proteins with plant-based B vitamins, etc. And the third thing is that we need the alternative perspective because it's hard to invent a new collar. I say in a book. It's just hard to think outside of the box in which we've always eaten like this, right? So how can you think of a new way of living together? And that's what I wanted to do in the book, just kind of give people a realistic perspective. This is how it might look like. Now it's up to you. Where do you want to live? In which scenario? Mm.
4: We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back with our guest.
0: Has dealing with stress and trying to get more focused a New Year's resolution you haven't cracked yet or don't really know how to fix? I have a lot of trouble staying focused and I also get super stressed out. And I think the not being able to stay focused really dovetails with that. So if there was a way for me to keep my focus that didn't also cause my brain to get so scattered with stress, I would love to be able to fix it. I sometimes can't focus on the task at hand because I'm so busy realizing that there are things I need to do on the Just Between Us Instagram account. So I'll be like fully writing something, and all of a sudden my brain will go, oh, JBU Instagram, have to post on social media. Truvega is a handheld product that stimulates the vagus nerve to improve overall health and wellness. Stimulating the vagus nerve with Truvega helps to balance and strengthen the nervous system, which reduces stress, increases focus, improves mood, and improves sleep. TruVega is owned by ElectroCore and uses its patented technology for overall health and wellness benefits. Its utilized technology is the most clinically studied and tested vagus nerve therapy available. Customizable sessions are only two minutes long. Recommended usage is one session in the morning and one at night. TruVega comes programmed with 350 sessions, which, if used twice a day, will last approximately six months. It's drug-free and easy-to-use therapy to help improve your health. No app or phone is required. We offer free standard shipping, payment plan options, and a 30-day money-back guarantee. It's only available in the U.S. at this time. Visit truevega.com T-R-U-V-A-G-A.com, and enter promo code JUSTBETWEENUS to enhance your wellness journey, support this podcast, and receive $15 off. That's T-R-U-V-A-G-A.com. Check out promo code JUSTBETWEENUS.
3: We're back. How do you see like a bigger shift happening towards veganism? Like what kind of steps do you think are going to take place in, you know, more urban areas to begin with that will get more people on board with this?
2: Yeah, well, you know what I always found very hopeful or helpful in my own thinking is that in sociology there's this idea that you don't need the majority to have something become mainstream. They say in order to get the ripple effect going, you need about 10% of the people some say even 3% of the people, but this comes from lab studies in which they you know, had, I don't know, 100 people or 300 people, and then they would have 3% or 5% or 10% of those people walk around with a very different view on something important. And those people got the assignment to really act as if they firmly believed in it. And you can then see that quite fast the others will follow because people do not really like change but they like it less to not be part of the social group that seems to be cool.
4: I was going to say it's just influencers. It's just making sure all the influencers
2: are vegan. I actually say that Instagram is having a huge role to play here because there's, you know, when I grew up, this was part of the reason why I continued to drink cow's milk was because I was lazy. I didn't want to go there. I just really liked my cappuccinos. The other one If I saw a vegan, I kid you not, they were always like pale, very slow, working in like one of those biological, ecological shops and looking kind of hippie-ish weird. Now I see stunning vegans on Instagram, kind of, you know, fit girls in bikinis showing off their green shake. It's not how I eat. I don't think anybody should live on green shakes. I don't even like them. But a lot of the vegans kind of almost portray themselves as super glowy, super healthy because of the vegan diet, right? It has become something that is associated with fitness, with strongness even, and also with looking damn good. But then that's annoying too. It's very annoying. I think a lot of the people turning vegan think it will help them to lose weight or become really healthy, which is also a myth. You know, I I just finished dinner. It's Amsterdam time here. I just had a Beyond Meat burger and a lot of comfort food with that. You know, it's not necessarily healthier than if I would have had something else with animal protein. It's it's, vodka is vegan. Yeah. (laughs) A lot of the candy is vegan. You know, you don't want to live on that. So I think that's a myth as well. Yeah.
4: Oreos are vegan.
2: Oreos are (laughs) vegan. Yeah potato chips most often
3: what are just some of like the main highlights of how the the meat industry and the animal product industry are so bad for the environment
2: one of the problems is the emission of methanes and that's not just cows farting <laughs> it's also just the land being really degraded so it's pretty normal that living beings cause emissions it's just not so normal that we now have such degraded land that the soil can't absorb anything anymore. So that's one of the problems. A bigger problem might be the water degradation and the water pollution. And then there's the problem of cutting huge amounts of forests, especially in the Amazon, which is done to produce soy, which is then used as animal feather. So, you know, that's a huge problem, I find. And then we're not even talking about the transport, etc. But it's the water, it's the soil, it's that we simply do not have enough land to have even more animals for even more people. We're a growing population, so if we all want to continue to eat as much meat as we do now, we need more land. It's finished. It's done. We don't have it. It's already really a big problem now. And I think this really overlaps with one of the more complex themes where people say, and I totally understand them, like, "Oh, why don't we just go back to a situation in which it's small scale?" perhaps circular agriculture. And that sounds lovely. The only problem is if we insist in keeping up what we are used to now, if we insist in not decreasing the amount, but just, you know, two to three times a day, we'll have a bit of animal protein and not small pieces, right? Oftentimes in a restaurant, you see that people eat enormous amounts, much more than their body needs for proteins. If you want to do that, we cannot go smaller scale. We need to go bigger. And then you only have to look at China where they have like eight floor pigs flats to see what we might end up to. And that I find a very unhappy future scenario. So then I'd rather say, let's all of us cut back, go plant-based where possible. And perhaps every now and then, like our grandmothers and grandfathers did, you know, when it's a special occasion... You buy a really expensive piece of meat and you really enjoy it. That I can see in the future, but not let's just live as we do now and then continue with small scale circular agriculture. That's, that's a paradox. That's impossible. I also see a role for gr- lab grown meat, for example, in the future, which is already occurring. Not all the vegans like it because they still have this idea. Can we not just leave the meat out. But lab-grown meat, for the people who don't know, you don't have to kill an animal. You just use the blood of one cow, say, and then you kind of grow that tissue in the laboratory. And you don't get fake meat, you actually get the actual meat because it grows into muscle and that's what we eat. The downside there is the price. At this moment, it's super expensive, as in $20 for a burger, which is impossible. But in 10 years from now or in five years from now, it might be a really normal price, right? So that will help a lot of people, I think, who really love that taste and texture so much.
4: I have a question about rather than personal responsibility, are there, you know, a lot of times when we talk about climate change, people say, well, personal responsibility is so small compared to what these companies are doing. Can you talk a bit about like, you know, going vegan versus trying to get these corporations to operate in a way that is more environmentally friendly
2: yeah for me it's interlinked so i really see consuming or going to a supermarket and buying your goods as a form of voting and it's like you're just kind of investing in the companies that you want to grow and you're not investing in the companies you want to see less of and just very practically if we would all tomorrow go to the supermarket and buy only the plant-based products and all the plant-based alternatives for meat and for fish, the supermarket manager would see that and buy more of that because apparently that's the lucrative part, right? And then those companies get better investors and they will grow. And I think that actually has a huge power. So I think people underestimate their own power. And I feel that. I think we're often a bit overwhelmed with how big some of the companies have become and it feels like everyone is deciding everything and it doesn't matter what you do anyway but I think it was Rebecca Solnit who once wrote really beautifully like there is a difference between naivety and being really skeptical and being hopeful for her hopefulness is not necessarily believing that it's going to be better But it's, if you wouldn't do it, it might have been worse. So it might have actually made a difference, even if you didn't really know. It might have been even more animals slaughtered if you would have, you know, contributed. Or it might have been even more companies grown into the meat industry if you would have continued to live as you did. And then she says, for me, hope is, in my own translation, it's like careful optimism or humble optimism. You're kind of allowing the idea that maybe... It might be better than you think. And I always think that's kind of helpful. And I do agree with people that it is very complicated. And I think there's a difference between us having individual power and us individually being to blame. Because, again, I think we were all born and raised with this kind of normalized idea. And it's just a really new idea that perhaps we should go all the way different. But at the same time, yes, governments, it would be wonderful if they would have meat taxes or to have subsidies for farmers who want to transfer to become plant-based, etc. But I think if we, with a group of people, and again, it doesn't have to be the majority, it can be 10% or it can be 3%, if we would radically change our behavior, that will give a very good signal to shop owners, to supermarket owners, to producers, to investors. And I think nowadays that's where the power lies.
4: You've done a lot of work all over the world. And you were talking about the Inuit people who eat whales and seals. And like, I'm sure there's a huge difference between us in the U.S. or China with, you know, these massive farms with these animals just churning stuff out versus like the, you know, war-torn countries or the places that you've been where, culturally it's like a different thing to eat meat so like is it sort of this idea that like most of us could do it but we don't want to tell people in Africa or in small Asian countries what to do you know what I mean like how have you seen that
2: well I see you know because people always ask me before I go on a trip for my work like oh it must be really hard to be vegan there and like I said sometimes I do make an exception but oftentimes the more poor the people the less meat they eat typically. Yeah. So in Asia, for example, you know, they will eat tofu and tempeh because meat is really inaffordable. They might eat a little chicken or a little fish, but not much. When I was living in the slums for six years in Jakarta, basically everybody was semi-vegetarian. So I think they are oftentimes not the problem. It's more that we're consuming a lot. And it's the same even with the US versus China, where people say, Oh, but look at China, it's going to be horrible. It's like, well, the average American still eats per day much more meat than the average Chinese, right? Yep. Let's not forget that. And yes, they're growing because for them, it is still a status symbol and more people can afford it. At the same time, if they started doing it because it was a status symbol, because it resembles something that the rich people in the West do, if it becomes really cool to have our mushroom steaks in the West, then, you know, maybe the rest of the world will follow because that's apparently the way to go. So I'm not that negative about that. But I do think we have to start because we do create the most emissions. We're now spending the most. Right. I think it's just kind of a responsibility that comes with living in very wealthy, overproducing countries.
4: Yeah.
3: And I have to imagine, though, if somebody listens to this and they totally agree and they're like, okay, I want to, you know, change my lifestyle the jump into veganism is rather extreme. (laughs) And so do you recommend sort of a step-by-step process where first you maybe eliminate red meat, then you become a pescatarian, then you become a vegetarian, then you become a vegan? Does that seem to be more effective than just making this huge abrupt change?
2: Yeah, and perhaps even smaller. So I've had a lot of friends, for example, around me who just stopped drinking cow's milk and just tried out oats milk, for example, it is very popular amongst many people who have nothing to do with veganism, but they just like to taste.
4: Or they have terrible little Jewish stomachs.
2: <laughs> that might be an- another problem that they run into. <laughs>
4: You're saying you drank cow's milk. I was like, what's that like? My poor little tummy.
2: <laughs> yeah. No, but I-, I would really go small. So that's one. I'm. That's how I did it. I turned vegetarian. Then I left out fish you know, then I was like, oh, okay, so I'll try some of the soy yogurt or the almond yogurt or the coconut yogurt. And then when I was used to that, I got a better cook because I, you know, vegan cooking is different than non-vegan cooking. I don't think it's more difficult, but it's different. I mean, a lot of vegans make this mistake before they might have been used to having like first you think of what type of meat am i going to eat and then you have little veggies that match it and, and perhaps potatoes or rice or you know whatever that matches the meat and then they go vegan and they continue making that but without the meat it's like it's a very sad situation on their plate they will have like potatoes and a little bit of salad and nothing to it that's not the way to go for vegans so i think if people want to experiment with vegan cooking, it's more like you, the basis is the vegetables and the grains. I would recommend people start with testing out recipes from the internet and just Mm -hmm. search for easy vegan. And then you kind of go into that shift. And it's fun because you get to experiment with a lot of things that you have never cooked with or not in that way. There's a lot of recipes that have never used uh, animal protein, like Indian recipes, for example. So that's really easy to make. And it's really tasty because it was meant as that. So you're not feeling like, oh, it's nice, but I'm eating the alternative. No, it's a, it, it wasn't part of the job, you know. So I would really recommend people go slow, just, you know, go one product at a time, experiment a bit. If you have an alternative plant-based cheese, the first one you may not like, the third one you may like, you know, etc. And then experiment with cooking, perhaps two times a week to start with, and then see how you feel in a month, you know.
3: Yeah, I love that. I mean, I think one of the big problems with this is there's a morality element to it, right? And when people are told that they're being a bad person, (laughs) or they start to infer that they're being a bad person, the defenses go up. And suddenly you're not dealing with reason, you're not dealing with this, you know, how they would behave in a different situation, because whether or not your intention is attacking them, they feel attacked, so they kind of shut down. Mm.
2: Absolutely. And and you know what is interesting there as well? When I slowly turned vegan while I was reading, writing the book, I also noticed that I found it really fearful in social situations or awkward in social situations. So I would have never expected this, but I felt like I was being the weird one going to friends and you know, having to ask them like, oh, thanks for the invite for dinner, but yeah, I eat vegan nowadays, so can you please, you know, cook something special for me? That's how it felt. Like I was was feeling like I was taking too much space, like I was being a burden, I was making it difficult. I didn't want to be the difficult person. I just wanted, you know... And so that for me was probably the hard thing, not so much missing the animal protein. I was fine with that. I didn't really miss things so much. The cooking wasn't, I I thought it was kind of fun to learn new recipes, but that feeling of, oh, now they have to amend their favorite recipe for me, that felt weird. Or coming Mm. to visit your parents-in-law and you know they have only cow's milk in the coffee and you're like oh I'll have it black for now you know it's (laughs) that I found really hard and so I had to kind of find my own tricks around that and nowadays what I do is I will say hey thanks so much for the invite do you know I'm vegan I can bring something if you like I can cook for us and then sometimes people say oh yes that would be great and so I'm not a bother at all other times they say, oh, no, I kind of like it. You know, I'll I'll experiment. I, I like cooking. So let's see where it leads. And if I have people coming over to my place, I just make something really nice without, and this is what vegans, a lot of vegans do wrong, I think, if I may say so. They will cook something plant-based for their friends who are meat eaters. And then they go hysterically, pointing at the food and be like, can you believe this is vegan? It's actually vegan. <laughs> you know, it's vegan. And everybody, of course, then starts to be very critical. Well, if you just cook something really nice and it's wonderful and everybody's really enjoying the dinner, then oftentimes I have my friends like, hey, what is that? And I say, oh, it's saitan. It's seitan is plant-based alternative for meat and it has a very chewy structure and so they're surprised about that and like "Well, i can share the recipe and then they'll make it one time at home Mm -hmm. which is you know wonderful but i think that is really the way to go to kind of lure people into it show them it's not as scary as they think it's not untasty at all it's really nice actually and then, you know, it's up to them. But oftentimes people are really open because you don't get the defenses up, right? Because they're not doing anything wrong. Mm-hmm. They're just like us. They don't know what to do. They think they need the meat, but then they see horrible things happening with the meat before it was meat. You know, it's it's not an easy position to be in.
3: Totally. Wow. My partner is going to be really unpleased when he comes home and I'm <laughs> like... <laughs> and I'm like that fish in the freezer we can eat that fish and that's it Um.
2: (laughs) well I mean my next book is on the future of love you know he wouldn't be too pleased perhaps if we would have been speaking about like the future (laughs) of sex robots and you know dating apps
4: he would probably prefer that I was going to say, Allison would love to do an interview about the future of love.
3: I really would. And I'll I'll be contacting you after this. Um, (laughs) Yeah, do so. (laughs) But for now, would you like to play a game show?
2: Yes, please. I've been waiting for it. I have no idea what kind of game show it is, but it sounds good already.
3: Great. (laughs) Optimism. So this game is called Hypotheticals. You and Gabby are my contestants. I'm going to give you a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask any clarifying questions you might have, and then you tell me what you would do in that situation. And then I get to decide whose answer
4: I like better.
2: Sounds good.
3: Sometimes I like all the answers. Sometimes I don't like any. It's really mood-based for me.
2: No pressure, Gabby. Here we go. (laughs)
4: You kind of can't win. But sometimes you win and you didn't expect it. Exactly. A lot like life.
3: All right. Okay. Our first game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? Your partner of four years is an astronaut. After returning returning from their first mission, they admit that they heavily made out with a coworker solely because they thought it would be their only opportunity to kiss in space. And that's undeniably
2: cool. Would you (laughs) stay with this cheater? I would have left him beforehand because I think it would either be Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk and I find them totally unsexy. They would have (laughs) been making out with each other. Not my thing. Not my thing. I would have broken up as soon as you left for the sky. I'd be like, bye. (laughs) Finally. You'd have disdain for astronauts in general.
4: Well, citizen space travel is the only way that that's going to be happening, right? They grounded all the shuttles. Unless... My partner is an astronaut from another country. Right. Very well could be. So then they're a cosmonaut, as they look like to call them in Russia. I'd
2: stay. Yeah, would you stay? Is the person they made out with attractive and would they be in for a threesome?
3: Oh, interesting. Yeah, yes and yes, I'll say. I'll say yes and
2: yes. Then I would consider after three glasses of vodka. <laughs> to
4: stay. It's also tough because, well, I would be into that threesome, but I'd be so jealous because I'd be like, you guys made out in space. Not even about the hookup. I'd just be like, I didn't get to make out in
2: space. That's true. You didn't even get to go to space. I don't even get to go to space. Would it feel different in space, you guys think?
4: Well, they have to know. That's why they had to try.
2: Would, would like the tongues lounge up in the air all the time? <laughs> that is fascinating. You have to take off the helmet. So how? How, Allison? How? Oh, in the shuttle. They were in the shuttle. Um,
3: but maybe they were in the shuttle and they turned off the, an- the gravity thing. So they were floating while they made out.
2: That's still kind of cool. That
4: is cool. It's pretty cool. <laughs> I think you both stay. Yeah. You know, it is interesting. I'll have to look that up. I wonder if the human tongue stays up on the roof of your mouth when
2: you're in space. It's a serious question.
4: Well,
3: already your tongue tends to rest on the roof of your mouth anyway, doesn't it? This is how Allison finds out that she has a weird mouth.
2: (laughs) No, No, that's what they always say in yoga, right? When you're relaxing, they say your tongue is touching... If you're relaxed, it should be resting against the upper side of your mouth. Okay. If I think. Pretty
3: good. So I have a regular mouth over here. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I think you would both stay and then try to sneak onto the next shuttle. I would love to.
2: Yeah, I think that would be great. Also, I think having a partner as an astronaut is very interesting, right? Mm -hmm. He, He or she would have a very interesting life and career.
3: You get some space from them. Pun intended. (laughs)
2: <laughs> it's true And especially after lockdowns We can all use a little bit of that
3: right? <laughs> totally Okay our next game Is this a date You are out taking a walk Around a gorgeous park When it starts to rain Another person who has been walking around the park Opens a huge umbrella And asks if you would like to take cover with them So you can both continue your walk comfortably Is this a date? How big of an umbrella is it? It is twice the size of a regular umbrella. Wow, like one of those golf umbrellas. Yeah, very big, easily, comfortably, can fit two people under it. Do we talk while we walk? No.
2: Is there an arm sliding over your shoulders when we walk?
3: No, you're just very close to them under a huge umbrella.
2: Is it an attractive person?
3: (laughs) (laughs) I love how people ask as if that matters.
4: <laughs> well, then it changes how I think about it.
2: I mean, I would never go on a date with somebody I find unattractive, right? So right. It, I'm just kind of calculating back. Mm-hmm. If we're walking under this umbrella and it's an attractive person, I would conclude, then this must be a date. You're very close to me. It's very romantic. You're also very attractive. So this must be a date. If, however, It's like an astronaut wearing a helmet being really weird. I'd be like, no, this is just needed to protect me from something. But this is just practicality. It's not romantic at all.
3: This is my problem with that, is that it doesn't change the scenario for them, whether or not you view them as attractive. They might think it's a date. They might think it's a date.
4: So the question is really, are they hitting Do they think it's a date? And then if you got married, would that be the anniversary (laughs) of your first date? Right. (laughs) Wow.
3: They are very attractive, though. They just happen to be incredibly... It's the best-looking person you've ever seen. Okay, then it's a date.
2: Yeah, then it's definitely a date. Yeah, I would totally grab hands underneath the umbrella.
3: I hate to bring it to you. It wasn't a date. They were just being nice. And when you start talking to them, they go, Please be quiet. I'm having my my park walk.
2: <laughs> I'm having my earbuds in. I was actually listening to a podcast. Yeah, exactly. Shut
3: up. <laughs> wow. Burn. Okay, our final game, Get ready. Are you a terrible parent? Your child, 16, is going through a phase where they don't want to talk to you. They have also declared that time is money and said they will speak to you one hour a day during dinner time if you pay them 30 dollars an hour. You agree to these terms so they don't cut you out of their life. Are you a terrible parent?
4: A oh, little businessman, <laughs> raised a businessman. Little tiny man in his little 80s Wall Street suit. Are you a terrible parent or, you know, are you a, a,
3: a dealing parent? You're good at negotiation.
4: Yeah, I come back. I go, I'll do it for 25. <laughs> he goes 28. I go 26. He goes 26.50. I go, you've got a deal. <laughs> so then
2: I think you're actually helping your kid because you're training him to be a better negotiator. Ooh, I think that's very useful as being an educator as well. I can totally see that. In the future
3: you see yourself maybe paying your child to talk to you? I would pay her for hugs. Yeah. For <laughs>
2: sure. No problem. I'd be like I, I I will pay you if you will not be ashamed of me in public, which is not going <laughs> to happen probably. Right? Uh,
4: I feel like I would want t- terms of like what they will talk to me about cuz like if That's they if one. I'm giving them 2650 and then they're t- giving me one word answers, it's not going to cut it. They will have full conversations with you
3: on everything other than dating and what they do at parties.
2: But that's the only thing I want to know. Yeah.
4: <laughs> I don't care what they think about politics.
2: <laughs> what did you eat for lunch? You know, I don't care. Oh, yeah, probably yeah. I would care because they're 16 and you want them to be healthy. So, yeah, then I, I would go for 10, 10 an hour. I mean... <laughs> Seriously. Because if
4: you, right, then I go, all right, if we've taken dating and what you do at parties yeah. off the table, 15. And then okay. they go, no. And then I go, honestly, you've talked to me for a long time right now for free. So you're bad at negotiating. <laughs> oh my God. Should have written the number on a on a piece of paper and slid it towards me. And
2: that's a lesson.
3: Yeah. All right. This seems like another great parenting tip to come out of it
2: hypotheticals. Does. yeah we just go all in you know (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much for joining us this was so wonderful
3: and informative where can people find out more about all the various things that you do
2: I have a website. It's roanvenvorst.com. It might be helpful for you as listeners if you guys have it in the show notes because it's (laughs) a difficult European name, but roanvenvorst.com. I hang out a lot on Instagram with the same handle. So it's also roanvenvorst. Yeah, I keep people informed about my new books. Sometimes I have some academic articles out. Sometimes I have more popular articles out. So I would love to be in touch there. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was really fun. Thanks so much for having me. Stick
1: around
3: after the break we'll be talking all about nostalgia. Welcome back to just between us. It's time for Top X X X X X X baby
4: baby baby nice <laughs>
3: Wow. Really Barry Whited that one. <laughs> Hello, Melissa. Thank you for joining
1: us. I'm excited about this.
3: Yes. I'm a, I try to pick topics that Melissa will want to talk to <laughs> us about. <laughs> so nostalgia. What do we think? I feel like we're in an age where everyone is talking about how we're all so nostalgic, most likely because we might be living in the apocalypse. But (laughs) what do you guys feel? Do you feel like nostalgia is a big part of your life? You punched me in the gut with this one
4: (laughs) because the little itty bitty pieces of nostalgia for Like the '90s, late '80s, '90s, like it's interesting. So, like, there's a difference maybe between being nostalgic for things you experienced and being nostalgic for eras that you were not in. Oh yeah. So, like, I love the '70s. I got really into disco over the pandemic, and I wrote something just based on a hyperfixation on disco. Ended up writing a book, but that is an era I have no, I have completely romanticized because I was not there. Versus like our childhoods. My personal childhood, not great, but the world itself, Nickelodeon, Pizza (laughs) Hut, like, you know what I mean? And a good Pizza Hut, not Pizza Hut currently, sorry to Pizza Hut employees, but you know what I mean? Like just the sitting down to watch all that and like your babysitter got you domino, you know what I mean? Like, ugh.
1: Yeah. What about you, Melissa? Um, I feel like trends every 20 years, they come around. So we're at right. that point where the trends are from the 90s, from our childhood. So it, I wouldn't say that nostalgia is like something that's, you know, because we're in a pandemic. It's because that's just what happens every 20 years. So I love it. I'm actually in a subreddit that's very active about nostalgia. So this is mm-hmm. one of my things. Wow. What do
3: people say about it?
1: I wouldn't say it's like what people say. It's more like they'll post things like that were childhood toys and stuff. And then it sparks conversation about who had this or who had this. And then who had a different version of the same type of thing. So it's just cool. Mm-hmm. I mean, I even, I'd say like in November, I bought a Light bright. Did you guys have one of those?
4: Light bright? Yeah. Wait, what was, which
1: is that one? It was like this like kind of like screen thing where you'd put a piece of paper that had these pre- dotty things that like would be like what the color should be and then you'd poke in a little tiny light bulb and then it light up and then make a big picture oh that's so cool yeah it's so cool and i bought one a few months ago just because i wanted to sit and go back but the ones now aren't as cool as they used to be they're lighter and you can't like sit them up i mean i'm sure it's because of safety because there used to be a very hot light bulb in there but and it's not there anymore <laughs> but it's just like it's not as fun as it was
3: right yeah oh, i have like a complicated relationship because i had a tumultuous mental health childhood and stuff and so i i've never been like oh man i wish i was a kid again or a teenager again no but, i wouldn't be a kid
4: again if you paid me
3: yeah <laughs> but i definitely with my music 80 percent of my music it's as though i have not progressed past the year 2012
4: yeah Even more than that, I know you and I both love pop punk. And like one of the biggest things for me is that I have not progressed past, but I now am in my 30s and have money. So when there's a festival that's like, did you see this festival? I'm not going to plug it because we don't we're not getting paid. But there's a festival that's like all emo bands from that time. And it's like a festival that's coming out, I don't know, next year or something. And I was like, I'll go to that. But you know what? (laughs) His tickets will be $100. But guess what? I'm an adult, baby. No one's parents has to buy me shit. Like that's how I go into hot topic. I'm like, I'm an adult. <laughs> like that's the whole thing, right, Melissa? You're a grown up. You don't have to ask your parents for the light bright. You buy the light bright no, yourself. I just
1: went got it. And then my my niece who is eight, I showed it to her, and she was like, "Oh, you got that for me?" I said, "Absolutely not. This is mine." <laughs> <laughs>
4: Yeah, is it's just like I feel like it's me giving myself the stuff that I like wasn't allowed to have and then I'm just to my parents being like fuck you guys I'm buying it now it will be just as satisfying it's interesting because it's like
3: what what is it that you're longing for are you longing for who you were during that time are you longing for just like the the general atmosphere of the
4: time like I
3: think it's so complex I think
4: I'm longing for the zeitgeist of the country. I think like it's hard to say pre nine eleven was simple, because it, it like wasn't. There was absolutely like a lot. We we act like nothing happened before then, but like there was the OJ trial, there was Bill Clinton, there was, you know, all this kind of stuff that that made our country ripped our country apart. And like not talking about like history of the US, I'm talking about like in the years right before nine eleven. So there was like all kinds of shit. But then I think the world got divided for us into like pre and post 9-11. And so like pre 9-11 feels like an innocent time. It feels like, wow, we really had no idea. I know it. it's like, oh, it doesn't have to do with the pandemic. But I think kids now, like, what is their culture? Like their culture is like TikTok. They're being robbed of these things like graduation, prom, football games, like whatever things I never engaged with any of those things. But Things that, you know, going to the mall, like, whatever, that's all been taken from them. So, of course, they feel nostalgic for 80s, 90s, you know, early 00s, because to them it feels like a simpler time, the same way that I feel like I was in eighth grade when 9-11 happened and, like, pre-9-11 is romanticized in my mind. And so, for them, pre-pandemic is, you know, romanticized in their mind. Like, oh, my God, the year 2004 when you just, like, rolled up in your car and went to Abercrombie with your friends like no mask you know what I mean like I can totally see why
1: but even with that like when we were kids there was a point where like 70s was in for a bit like all mm-hmm. the stuff in Dillius was like 70s inspired and stuff so I wouldn't even say it's like Again, like it's it's just trends like things just are cyclical. Mm -hmm. They come back around.
3: I think I'm realizing the thing I'm most nostalgic for is when there wasn't a liquid uh, requirement to go through TSA Mm -hmm. and you could have your toiletries in your carry on.
1: Also, you know, (laughs) you could walk people to like all the way up to get on the plane and stuff, which it's weird now. Yeah,
3: my main nostalgia is about different airport security
4: rules. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I feel about the TSA? It's theater. (laughs) (laughs) I hate it. One guy tried to get one shoe bomb through and we changed the entire system. And you think you're actually like preventing anything? You're not.
1: If somebody wants to get through, they're going to get through,
4: you know. They've done studies 90% of the time. They do not catch things in the TSA. So I have mixed feelings because I think it employs a lot of, I mean, largely people of color, it employs a lot of them. But do I think it's like doing anything other than slowing everything down and making everything worse? No. And do I like that I have to go through a machine that scans my body and then someone chooses male or female? No, I don't like that. So whatever. We could do a whole thing about the TSA. I think you just did. I could do a whole (laughs) episode about it. But I, I think there's also things that feel funny to reflect on, like things like the beginning of the internet, like watching The Matrix back where The Matrix came out, I think in 2000 or 1999. And the way that people imagined the internet would be was like chef's kiss. It was so funny. We're all going to be wearing like long coats and skinny glasses. <laughs> and like, there's going to be, you know, like hyper code everywhere or whatever. Like, it's just like really, it's cool to look at, I think. And to see like what we thought technology would be and the ways that technology has has changed. So like thinking back on, you know, AOL or like having to get your sister off the fucking phone so you could go online and play Slingo with your internet boyfriend who's probably 45.
1: Slingo (laughs) takes me back. I love Slingo.
4: Slingo. I've never even heard of this. Yeah, it was a game, but they had a chat option. So Mm -hmm. you could play, but you could also like chat with a stranger. For instance, your internet boyfriend, Ethan, who again was probably 45. (laughs) (laughs) what do you think that people will be nostalgic for um, from this time period in a couple of years god i don't know i really don't think they will be but maybe i'm full of shit
1: but also like it's the the youth that decide that i don't think there's anything that we our age is not going to be anything that we're going to be nostalgic for it's going to be the teenagers now
4: yeah Mm. i like to ask my dad and his sister who were both active in the hippie movement I like ask them you know what do you think about now and stuff and so they are nostalgic for like what they deem simpler times but they're also happy that we've moved forward progressively with like gay rights and civil rights and like what things were I mean I read a lot about what things were like for gay men in the 80s and it was just like awful so it's like hard because they are nostalgic for the aesthetics of the time Which I think is the thing like I think like a lot of times people are more into the aesthetics of the time than of the actual what things were like at that time but what are the aesthetics of now like I don't feel like 2020 or 2021 has an aesthetic. No,
1: it's sweatpants. (laughs) Like, there's no... Yeah, like... like,
4: (laughs) People are going to be... They're going to be like, oh, remember when we used to go to office buildings? (laughs) Like... Yeah, what's the (laughs) aesthetic of now? You know, like, if you were going to... If in 20 years you were going to dress up for, like, a 2020 party, like... It's going to be, like what we're
1: wearing on zoom meetings it's gonna be that kind of
4: thing yeah yeah it'll be a fancy top
3: and
1: sweatpants below (laughs) and they'll wear masks but like ironically yeah
4: that's what I'm like I it sucks because I don't feel like we have like a vibe I'm sure that we
3: do we just can't see it because we're in it right
1: a lot of it is like 90s stuff but it's gonna be the the two Mm -hmm. the elevated 2000s 20s what do we even call this yeah the
3: 20s 20s again I don't yeah, know Yeah,
1: it'll be that version of like the 90s with this version of it
3: yeah mm-hmm. for the early 00s it seems yeah. like more so maybe people will be nostalgic for when we used to eat meat because
4: now we'll be in a completely plant-based society yeah can you imagine the nostalgic rebels who are eating meat
1: I'll probably still be there sorry I know
4: <laughs> <laughs> that was my optimism <laughs> What did we rate this episode? I rate it three out of two undoing societal
1: beauty standards. Very good. Mine was kind of similar. I'd rate it 10 out of five uh, societal norms. Mm.
3: I will go 13 out of 11 paying your kid to talk to you.
4: (laughs) when she said i would pay for a hug i laughed so hard i know that was amazing <laughs> oh man well thank you to roanne van verst for being our guest just between us is the forever dog production hosted by me allison raskin and me gabby dunn produced by melissa demonts edited by coco lorenz executive produced by Brett bohm joe cilio alex ramsey and tracy soren brendan burns composed our killer theme music to listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at Forever Dog slash plus. And check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at
3: youtube.com slash foreverdogteam team or on our channel, youtube.com slash just between us show.
4: And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also on Instagram at She Is Not Melissa, at Allison Raskin, at Emotional Support Lady, at Gabby Road, at BWM Pod. That's right, we have other things. That's it. Okay, bye. <laughs>
0: FOREVER! DOG!